All across America and around the world, this is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. And now, your host for today's program, Dale Throneberry. And welcome to Veterans Radio. My name is Dale Throneberry, uh, Chief Warrant Officer, Sky Chief 20, the 195th Assault Helicopter Company in Vietnam, 1968-69. And welcome to our program today. This is going to be a, a replay of one of our earlier programs. In fact, it's early uh, as as 2010. So let me tell you how this program came about. Um, I was at breakfast earlier this week with a bunch of veteran friends, and we were talking about you know, the fact that Veterans Radio had been broadcasting now for 19 years, and one of them said, hey, Dale, what's what's one of your favorite stories? And without hesitation, it came to Left for Dead. And the story of Left for Dead, just briefly, is uh, part of my company, the 195th Assault Helicopter Company, and it occurred on the night before the Tet Offensive in 1968. There are two main players in this uh, story. One is Wendell Skinner, who was a crew chief on a helicopter, and the other is um, Major Earl Carlson, who was the commanding officer of the 195th at that time. So Wendell's aircraft had been sent out to retrieve a, to do an extraction, rather, of a special forces team that had run into contact out near the Cambodian border. As they went out to find the team, they were, the team on the ground was already surrounded by the bad guys. And I got, remember, this is the night before Tet Offensive, so there was a big, huge buildup of Viet Cong and North Vietnamese regulars out in that area of uh, Three Corps. And so they found the team, and they went in to start to go in to make it a landing, and the area had all been burned out as a result of firefights throughout the day, and it was all covered with ash. And as the pilots started to approach the ground, the ash started coming up and, and just engulfing the cockpit. And we think the pilot might have gotten a little vertigo. So he thought he was very close to the ground when actually he was not that close to the ground. And so he lowered the pitch in order to land. And when he did, the aircraft bounced on the ground, tipped forward, and the rotor blades just about beat the helicopter up. But the pilot went flying out through the windshield in his seat. So that's how hard he hit the ground. The co-pilot was almost knocked unconscious. The crew chief went out one side of the helicopter and the door gunner went out the other side. Well, it turns out that Wendell ended up, when the aircraft turned over on its side, that he was underneath the aircraft. And in the confusion of everything, the uh, rescue aircraft that came in to get the crew and to pick up the special forces teams and so forth you got to remember the fog of war and chaos that occurs during this because they're still under, there's a still a firefight going on around these guys. Um, when they took off, they, they didn't have Wendell with them. He was still under the, the um, helicopter and uh, it was assumed that he was dead. So they come back to the company area and this is after midnight and the current, uh, the major is there and he wants to know what happened. And so they tell him and he said, is everybody safe? And they said, no, we had to leave somebody out there. Well, this is a no, no with, with major Carlson and, you know, in the military in general, you never leave anybody out on the field. So he jumps into a helicopter with another pilot and they fly out. This is again, hours before Tet begins in the dark and they are able to find the aircraft somehow. And I'm going to stop there. 
<laughs> because that's where it gets really interesting. Uh, and we've got Wendell and we've got Major Carlson uh, recorded the, to tell their version of the story. So we're going to get to that in just a minute. So I want to make sure that I remind everybody that, you know, we want to thank our sponsors. We've got to do that here every week on Veterans Radio. We can't do the program without them. And first of all, I want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans specializes in veteran disability claims. And you can give Legal Help for Veterans a call at 800-693-4800. The National Veterans Business Development Council, better known as NVBDC, is the nation's leading third-party authority for certification of veteran-owned businesses. So if you want to do business with the federal government or with many corporations, they want to have make sure that if you are claim to be a veteran-owned business, that you are. So you need to get certified. And these are the folks that can do it for you. So for more information, you can go to their website, that's nvbdc.org, or give them a call at 888-237-8433. The Charles S. Kettles VA Medical Center in Ann Arbor, Michigan. For more information, you can go to va.gov slash Ann Arbor Healthcare. We want to make sure that we also thank our local veterans organizations for their longtime support of this program. And when we first got started, they were the ones who uh, helped us out generously. That would be the Irwin Preskin American Legion Post 46 and the Charles S. Kettles Vietnam Veterans of America Chapter 310, both here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And if you want to learn more about these organizations and their services, as well as how you can become a supporter of Veterans Radio, you can go to our website. That's veteransradio.net slash our sponsors. Always looking for sponsors. And uh, Veterans Radio is a production of Veterans Radio America, which is a 501c3 uh, nonprofit corporation, which means that any donations that you make will and should be tax-free. You need to contact your financial advisor to find out if your donation would be tax deductible. All right, so that's enough of the business end of the program today. Let's get right into this interview. So we're going back to 2010 here, and we're going to be talking about Left for Dead. I've heard that uh, place. We're back on Veterans Radio, and we're going back in time, folks. We're going to go back to the night of the 29th of January, 1968, the night before the Tet Offensive actually occurred. And we've got two people that were intimately involved in what was going on there. And I'm going to bring them both on our program right now. And first of all, I want to welcome Wendell Skinner. Wendell, welcome to Veterans Radio. Good morning. How are you doing, Wendell? Pretty good. Thanks to get started. It is it is exciting to get started. And also joining us on their phone is uh, Wendell's commanding officer at the time, and that was Major Earl Carlson. Major, welcome to Veterans Radio. Welcome. Nice to be there. It's nice to be anywhere sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> nice to be alive, yeah. Considering the alternative, right? It's a good deal. Uh-huh. Well, I'm really excited to have both of you on our program today, and I'm going to start off with, with Wendell. I'm going to have you... This may get difficult, I understand that, but let's go back to that night of 29 January 1968. Tell me a little bit about the mission you were on and what happened. Okay, we were uh, with a uh, uh, LERP outfit, uh, 51st Infantry Airborne LERPs, and we had uh, several teams out along the uh, Ho Chi Minh Trail. And um, actually, we were in the company area watching a movie, 
And uh, just as the movie ended, the siren went off. Well, that meant, you know, we got to get on our horse and get out of there. And um, if, if I remember correctly, we didn't even have anybody go to the operations tent to get uh, coordinates. Uh, uh, we just got in the chopper, which would be me, uh, Frank Miller, and uh, Woody Woodworth, who was my pilot, and Tom Campbell was my co-pilot. And we just took off, and Woody was uh, getting the coordinates as we were flying to the site. And um, as we were going to the site, we also got in contact with the team, and they were uh, whispering on the radio, which meant, you know, that uh, B.C. was probably right on top of them. And they told us that they were pretty deep back in the jungle, and they were trying to get to the LZ, and uh, they had a blue strobe light. And they would hit that thing every now and again just to let us know where we were at because I think they called flying in a holding pattern. I'm not sure about that. We just had to kind of fly in a circle uh, to uh, wait until they told us to come in. So uh, when we got the word to come in, uh, we started into the LZ. And uh, as I remember, we were taking a little bit of fire I, and I was, you know, there's so much going on when you're going into an LZ, and, and, and at night it's even worse. Cause right. I mean, you're trying to look for obstructions and everything. But it was a, it was a pretty clear area, and I was a lot of chatter going on. And I looked up front to say something to Woody, and all of a sudden, all this stuff come flying over the windshield. And next thing I know, uh, I mean, I'm laying in a bunch of wires and. I had no clue what had happened, and what happened is the uh, that area had just been burnt out for some reason. And now this is near uh, Bear Cat, Vietnam. Oh, okay. And we uh, uh, I told I got, me that I got, a, I got that mistaken when uh, that's when, cool. when I put out the flyer, but it's okay because some of the people that were there corrected us right away, didn't they? <laughs> well, I'm well, yeah. I'm <laughs> Uh, that's okay. Uh, anyway, well, that's cool because the guys on the web, our websites, the 195th, uh, you know, they're pretty much up to date on all this stuff. But anyway, we come in and uh, in talking to Woody just the other night, we go over this thing every time we talk, and he said that uh, he just lost contact with the ground. He had no clue, and he thought he was close to setting down. Well. He just cut power and, man, we, he said we hit real hard and then, uh, he went flying out of the front windshield and still in his seat. Wow. And his one arm just about got tore off. It was all screwed up. Of course, I didn't know all this till after, mm-hmm. after the fact. And, um, I'm laying underneath the helicopter and I really am not sure what's going on. I knew I was in a, in a bad way, but I, you know, I, I, I was thought I was dreaming and I was waking up and passing out and I kept hearing all this uh, chatter outside and I kept, uh, you know, I actually saw a gunship fly over once and I kept hearing that thing circle and all of a sudden uh, uh, the chatter stopped and then I hear the the slow whine of that chopper motor winding up and all of a sudden the helicopter takes off and it gets 
quieter and quieter and quieter, and then, man, I'm in dead silence. And I thought, holy mackerel. I mean, I thought, man, you know, what is going to happen here? I, you know, I had all kinds of things going through my mind. Then I just kept passing out, coming to, passing out, coming to. And evidently, it was about a five-hour, six-hour period. Maybe that could, that might be a little bit much, but it, it was a, it was a, like from nine o'clock to one in the morning. The major can probably expound on that a little bit better. Yeah. And, uh, all I could think of when I woke up every time is, if the VC come inside or come into chopper and find me, I mean, I was all tore up, and I figured they would just shoot me because you know I wouldn't be much good to them. Well, your your leg was was hurt pretty badly, wasn't it? Well, it was pinned under the helicopter, it, okay. and 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 I was actually, uh, I was kind of sitting in an upright position with my leg. If you just tip a helicopter over on a side and then just slide your leg under the top of the roof. Uh, my knee and my thigh was just completely, uh, crushed by the helicopter. But believe it or not, I, I wasn't feeling any pain. And I don't know if that's a mental mechanism kicking in or, uh, you know, I have no clue. So, uh, I'm all of a sudden, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking all this stuff and then I'm going in and out and in and out. And, uh, I never heard uh, Major Carlson's helicopter come up, so I must have been completely out. And then I hear I hear this noise, and I'm thinking, "Oh boy, it, you know this is this is either good or bad." So, and I don't know who the who came up into the chopper, but he whoever it was kind of looked down, and it, it, it just it was just weird. He just looked down and says, "Huh." We thought you were dead, and it, it, it was just like a matter of fact, you know. And uh, so they get me out, and I'm going. I remember being put on the evac helicopter, which Major Carlson was flying, and I remember going into the uh, the 930 back hospital. But I, when I woke up the next morning, I was in a ward of amputees. Everybody around me was an amputee. And I thought, I'm not looking. I, you know, I just, I, I, I just looked at the ceiling and I was, I was just petrified. I thought, oh man, I, you know, I've lost a limb or something. But, you know, still I was grateful I was alive. But, you know, you don't think about a lot of that stuff. And then the doc came in and I just looked at him. I said, am I in one piece? He said, yeah, but he says you'll never, you'll never walk right again. And anyway, uh, from there I came back to camp. Uh, Zama, Japan, and then I went to Watson Army Hospital, and then I ended up at uh, Valley Forge for a year uh, rehab, and uh, you know well, let me, all the let stuff me, they did to me. Let me stop you there, okay? Because I want to I want to go back to the night that that you were shot down or crashed, and I want to try to to set up the the picture for our for our civilian audience. I want you to imagine that you're driving in fog. I mean, really thick fog, and you can't see the ground, and you're trusting your your own judgment instead of the instruments, which is what they always taught us in flight school. Trust your instruments, and you suddenly stop ten feet short of where you really wanted to be, and then you just let it coast forward, and you you know you crash into the wall. That's similar to what happened 
Uh, it sounds like what happened. I'm sure he probably got a little bit of vertigo and wasn't sure what what was up and what was down and thought, man, I'm so close to the ground, I'll just land right now because of all this ash flying around. So he brings it in hard, and, and when he brought it in hard, the pilot goes out the windshield. This is what... Yeah, seat me. I mean, seat and all. I mean, we're, we used to sit in armored seats. So I, and he goes out the windshield, just about tears his arm off. There was a lot of panic and a lot of concern on the ground because you not only had a helicopter that had now rolled over and just about beat itself to death, probably. You've oh, got yeah. A, you've got a uh, team of special forces on, on the ground, and they're, everybody's trying to get everybody out and get them on that one helicopter and get them out because, by the way, they're getting shot at at the same time. Yeah, and it, it, it was, it's, uh, and, and you know what happened, and I, Woody and I were talking about this the other night. We had a belly man that went out with us, and he was actually a pilot that we just, he wanted to go along and experience <laughs> a night extraction. Well, we think that when they found him, it was me. Oh, okay. So but the- in the meantime, Woody... They got out of his seat, and he was over there. He heard me screaming, and he was trying to dig me out. Well, he passed out from loss of blood. And, you know, when they found him, they just threw him. It's pitch black. I mean, you know. And I'm not sure if these guys had flashlights. I I have no clue. Uh, You know, we flew these guys everywhere, but I never paid a lot of attention to their equipment they carried. I'm sure they had those uh, red Red flashlights. Uh, yeah, with, yeah, with a little red covering over for night vision. Right, and uh, I mean, I don't know how good those are in the, in the dark, but uh, you know. And, and another thing, where we were at was a was a big build up for the Tet offensive in that area, and I'm sure that the VC did not want to compromise their position or what was going to happen the next day. Right. By coming in there and just just killing everybody. Because reactionary force would come out, or well, I think that's what they call it, and uh, it would have probably blown a lot of their cover. You know, we, I was talking to another uh, veteran of the Tet Offensive a couple of days ago, and he mentioned that uh, he had come around the corner. He was in Saigon or someplace outside of Saigon, and he'd driven a Jeep around the corner, and he said he saw a whole bunch of NVH regulars, and he figured, well, I'm done, and they just let him drive right on by. Because they didn't want to, you know, wreck their time schedule that they had for their, their 3 o'clock Attack. We're talking with Wendell Skinner and uh, Major Earl Carlson who of the 195th Assault Helicopter Company, and they're, we're talking about the night that uh, Wendell got aircraft got shot down, and he was caught underneath it. Through panic and confusion, he was left out in the field for about five hours before he was uh, a rescue was attempted. And now I want to go over to Major Carlson. Major Carlson, tell me what happened around midnight that night for you. Well, let me um, clarify a couple of things first. Uh, for those who are uninitiated, the LRP that uh, Wynn was talking about is the Long Range Patrol. And these were groups of uh, special forces, which the 195th Helicopter Company had been tasked to take out along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, uh, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, uh, and capture the stragglers and bring them back for interrogation so we could put together a puzzle about where they were coming from, how they were moving, and so forth. And uh, their cat is about 20 miles uh, east of Saigon, uh, down near the Delta area. We well, just want to clarify these points. I also say how much how impressed I was, Dale, that you were uh, a member of the 195th uh, sometime after I had left. 
That's right, and I heard all the stories, and it's really <laughs> great to talk with people about that I only heard about. Well, let me uh, paint a better, uh, clearer picture now. Uh, we had, I uh, had sent uh, from my unit uh, a half dozen aircraft up to uh, a place called Strong Bay Mountain. It's to clear off the peak of a mountain and build a special forces camp there, and that's where we went. And we, I put all of our people up there on, on a two-minute notice. Uh, you sleep by your aircraft, and as soon as the first mortar comes in, if the enemy chooses to take us, and they could have at any time, but we wanted to make it too costly for them. Within two minutes, the air, uh, I expected every aircraft to be airborne, to get out of there and come back and use our, our machine guns to and rockets to uh, fend off the uh, enemy force. But we knew that there were thousands, tens of thousands of people coming down through the jungle out down south towards Saigon, the populated areas. Um, and so I felt that we might have been attacked any time and that, that, uh, that we, were, we were doomed, but we were going to make them pay a price for it. But the night before uh, Tet, uh, we got a call back, or the afternoon before, we got a call back to Saigon with our helicopters, leaving the Special Forces people there, uh, which I didn't like too much, but that's the way it was. Uh, so that uh, that night I was sleeping, and uh, after midnight, somebody came and woke me up and told me that we had uh, lost an aircraft, and uh, it was the first we had lost. We had been through some pretty good battles by that time, but uh, we hadn't, hadn't had any loss of life or, uh, or aircraft. So uh, I, you know, asked uh, ordinary questions, and of course, one of which is, did we get all our crew back? They said, yeah, we got everybody but one who was uh, dropped underneath the aircraft and left for dead. I was incredulous. My God, you don't go off and leave your people alive or dead. That's the first order of, of, of battle among professional soldiers. You never go off and leave your dead on a battlefield. There's any way possible for you to get out of there. And of course, I was furious uh, with, a, with a pilot and co-pilot that they would go off and leave him there. What I didn't find out... Uh, until uh, when and I got back together again uh, a year ago, was that uh, the pilot and co-pilot and the other member of the ship were all beat up as bad as he was, and I could understand then that they, you know, they were passing out from time to time just like Winter was. So it was a terrible scene there. So anyway, uh, I got a good uh, co-pilot and I hopped in my chopper. We went out there and. When I approached the scene, and it was a full moon, and the, the trees had been burned out, and, but they still had the limbs projecting up toward the sky. Uh, the ground was covered with uh, ashes. It was like something out of a, a, a Carlos Borloff, uh, whatever his name was, uh, movie. Right. You know, a ghost scene. Uh, it was pretty obvious to me that as soon as we came in there, we were going to be flying blind. And so I told my co-pilot, I said, you watch carefully what I do now and get your mind set on where you are and what your rate of descent is so that you can get down to the ground. And you're not going to have a, a, a lot of load on the aircraft, so you won't have to worry about uh, stalling out and crashing. And you bring it on in because I'm going to get out and uh, take the crew chief with me. I'm going to go out and, and, and bring back uh, uh, Wendell. And so we made that, we had a good, very good landing there, and I was surprised at myself because we were blind about the last 50 feet going in. Of course, we were risk another aircraft or another crew, but uh, you know we often take chances in combat, and you do what you have to do. Absolutely. And uh, this doesn't quite track with what Wendell just said, but I'm not quite sure. You know, that was what 43 years ago. <laughs> well, you know. 
but as I recall, uh, well, I'm sorry, what is that, 33 years ago? I don't know, but anyway, uh, and I'm 81 now, so you'll forgive me if I have a few cobwebs up there. Uh, you're doing, but you're I was doing, sure you're I heard this. Fine. I, I was sure that I heard this scream, this loud, piercing scream, which made my hair stand up on end. And immediately I recognized that he was out there and that he was still alive. And so I got the crew chief, and we piled out of the aircraft with a toolbox and told the co-pilot to get up and get, uh, take it up and wait for a call. I would call when I said we were ready for you. Can I just interrupt here for a second? Yeah. I want people to realize that you were on the ground and you left. You told your perfectly good helicopter to leave you on the ground, yeah. and he took off and circled the area while you were on the ground trying to get Wendell out. Yeah. I, uh, well, uh, also we recognize there, there could have been anywhere between ten and fifteen, twenty thousand uh, NVA North Vietnamese Army uh, out there in, in BC, and uh, it was a pretty tenuous situation. Uh, but, you know, we weren't getting any fire at that time, so we got a hold of the tail section of the aircraft and lifted up the crew chief and I far enough for a window to slide out uh, from underneath the aircraft. And then we took what arm that we could in a hurry, and I called my uh, co-pilot to bring it in, and we got what arm that we could off the aircraft and uh, uh, took window back. Uh, Wendell, you may not know this, but uh, they uh, came out the next morning uh, with the... Uh, Helicopter record crew and lifted that thing out of there and took it back for salvage. We do have that, by the way. Those people, those of you that are watching our webcast, we do have that picture at at uh, some point. I'm, I know Gary's looking for it feverishly right now of, of the wrecked aircraft and of the Chinook uh, can, sling load years out. Can I say something uh, about yeah. those photos? Uh, uh, Terry Whelan, uh, uh, one of the pilots, he took all these photos the next day. So I want to give him credit in there, uh, you know, that, that he, he actually took these photos of the chopper and everything the next day. I, I have to tell uh, uh, both of you that I was able, when I went to the 195th uh, website, I was able to find a lot of a lot of photos that we're using with today's webcast. So uh, you're not watching it, but uh, I, I can see right now we're looking at the Chinook lifting your aircraft out of there. So I want to, I'd like to thank Mr. Uh, Wheeland also for the photographs. They're amazing photographs. And I have to look at these to remember what we did 43 years ago. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> anyway, um, so, so you you got Wendell out. Uh-huh. Right, Colonel? Uh, yes, Major? and I took him over to the Medivac Hospital, which was not very far from our base. And uh, I left him there and tried to get back and get a rest because I had to get the uh, base prepared. We had uh, two helicopters coming. That's 68 aircraft, and uh, I was the base commander as well as the commander of the 195th, and we had to get our, our positions, uh, uh, you know, provisioned and ready for a, a potential attack. We hadn't been formally notified, but I knew from the movement that we were going to be attacked. The whole area was. I mean, that was my own instinct. And uh, so I had to put uh, Wendell and, and the uh, other guys you know, on the back of my mind, when I tried to find a pilot and co-pilot, uh, they told me that they'd been taken to the hospital. And uh, so I, I just had to let that go. And, of course, uh, 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, we got the, the attack and all hell broke loose. And it was, uh, uh, well, there were a lot of stories there, but let's not go to that. Well, we'll, I get, we'll get, to, we'll, have a couple, we'll get to that. We'll get to that after the at the bottom of the hour, after we come out of a break. I do want to talk about the Tet Offensive. 
but uh, we got about a minute before that break. So how how did you guys hook up again? Real, real briefly, Wendell. Uh, I was on the website and I I saw the major's name, and I was he he was posting about uh, you know about me, and he didn't know who wait, the, wait minute, the Wendell, he called Wendell, it the kid called it the kid. I was, I was trying to find out what happened. His leg cut off. Well, <laughs> he was just and, looking for the guy with the leg. I'm gonna I'm gonna cut you guys off right now. We're gonna take a break. But uh, we'll be back on Veterans Radio, and we're talking today with, with uh, Wendell Skinner, uh, who uh, was injured in a, in a severe crash in Vietnam, and his commanding officer who came out in the middle of the night and got him the night before Tet. So stick around. We'll be right back. The Medal of Honor is the highest award for valor in combat given a member of the Armed Forces of the United States. There have been over 3,400 recipients of the nation's highest award. This is one of them. Army Captain Ed Freeman flew 14 rescue missions under intense enemy fire, saving 30 seriously wounded soldiers. Details after this. It's not easy being a veteran. Coming back from Iraq or Afghanistan, I had been so excited to come home. But it's harder than I thought. Join us at communityofveterans.org and connect to others who are going through the same thing. Brought to you by Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America and the Ad Council. As a flight leader, Freeman supported a heavily engaged American infantry battalion in the I Trang Valley in the Republic of Vietnam. The unit was almost out of ammunition after taking some of the heaviest casualties of the war, fighting off a relentless attack from a highly motivated, heavily armed enemy force. When the infantry commander closed the helicopter landing zone due to intense direct enemy fire, Freeman risked his own life by flying his unarmed helicopter through a gauntlet of enemy fire time after time delivering critically needed ammunition, water, and medical supplies to the besieged battalion. His flights had a direct impact on the battle's outcome by providing the engaged units with timely supplies of ammunition critical to their survival. After medical evacuation helicopters refused to fly into the area due to intense enemy fire, Captain Freeman flew 14 separate rescue missions, providing life-saving evacuation of an estimated 30 seriously wounded soldiers some of whom would not have survived had he not acted. All flights were made into a small emergency landing zone within 100 to 200 yards of the defensive perimeter, where heavily committed units were perilously holding off the attacking elements. The Medal of Honor series is a production of Veterans Radio. Military veterans touch everyone's life. I'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran, a close friend, relative, Maybe it's you. Even the toughest of us sometimes need help but don't know where to turn for support. You don't need special training to help a veteran in your life. Even small actions can make a world of difference. If you know a veteran in crisis, please call the Veterans Crisis Line, 800-273-8255. 800-273-8255. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. There's a familiar tune for some of you out there, just as distorted as it was when we listened to it 40 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we are we are here on Veterans Radio, and we're talking with Wendell Skinner and a Major Earl Carlson, and we're talking to them today about uh, Left for Dead is kind of what we we titled the program because Wendell aircraft had been shot down, crashed, rolled over on top of him, and they were able to get most of the crew out except for him. And uh, when the major heard that one of his crewmen was left out in the field, he and another pilot grabbed a, a ship and went out and got them. And now we're just talking about how they were able to connect with each other. 
Uh, Before you uh, go back to uh, uh, Wendell, let me make a couple comments. First of all, uh, we organized from nothing at Fort Carson, Colorado, and the people and the material and the aircraft and everything was going in, coming in fast. And I didn't have time to get to know the people like I normally would have because I was uh, supervising all these activities going on getting ready to go overseas. And so I didn't know the names of a lot of the people that I should have known. Well, I didn't know. You had a lot of people uh, in your company, though, too, sir. Yes, yes. Well, I only had uh, about uh, 300 and some of my own, but then another 300 and something in the other unit that was assigned to our, our base. And so I didn't know who it was that uh, I had picked up out there. I didn't know who the pilots were. And, and so there were a lot of names missing. So when I put my uh, first uh, um, notice on the uh, 195th website, I said, I'm looking for the man who had his uh, uh, leg cut off. And that's as much as I, I had because I've been thinking about him all those years. And uh, so this guy answered uh, uh, one of the things, and he was trying to help me find out who it was. So go ahead, Wendell, pick up from there. Well, I I couldn't figure out uh, why uh, about the guy with the leg cut off, and I thought, well, you know, I was a guy that, that was picked up and saved out there, and uh, so I don't know. We must have went back and forth on the website, I don't know, two or four times, and then I think at the, at the same time we figured out that uh, he was looking for me and I was looking for him. <laughs> and it, 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 oh my! I'm telling you, it was the most one of the most emotional things to to know that. I mean, oh my! All this stuff just kept flooding through my mind, and uh, I've got chronic post traumatic stress, and it's uh, it's a big uh, this, surprise. You know, this is a little bit of closure for me, and I'm sure it is for the major. Uh, I mean, the guys that started the website, the the, the 195th website. I, you know, uh, Ty Furbish and oh, I can't. I think Jay Hammond. Perel, and I can't think and, and, of the other guy. All of you guys were my heroes. I didn't even know who they all were uh, when I got there. I only heard stories about all of you. Well, you know, I was the last person I replaced a crew chief. Uh, I came right out of Fort Rucker, out of uh, crew chief school, and I my order said you're going. You know, sent to a deploying unit. And it was it was a 195th Aviation Company in Fort Carson, Colorado. And you know when I got there, uh, I think the first guy I ran into was a guy named Steve Hathcock, and he got me in there and got me to the commanding officer's office and got me set up. And I, I really never got to know a lot of the guys because uh, I was only there, I don't know, two months before we left, and a lot of that time was packing connexes and, you know, stuff like that, getting ready to go overseas. I had never seen my chopper till I got to Vietnam. <laughs> and, uh, it, I mean, uh, it's uh, there's just so many things that come into your mind, you know, that you forget after 40 years. Well, that that is true. And, and fortunately or unfortunately, Wendell, you were sent off to a medevac hospital and then off to Japan, and it's all that was occurring uh Major Carlson had to deal with another project the next day around 3 o'clock in the morning. Can you tell me a little bit about that? You mean me? Yeah. You were the one that <laughs> uh, was there. Yeah. You know, we had a little disruption. Uh, let me, let me uh, limit my comments. Uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> we've, got, we've got about 10, uh, 20 minutes total. Oh, well, I'm not going to take anywhere near that much. But uh, a couple comments, uh, the kind of unit the 195th was, uh, 
Actually, I came. I was sent by DA, and I, I reported to the uh, uh, new commander from my base. I'd flown up from Texas, Fort Walters, and uh, so uh, he said, I'm, "You're not going to command a unit under me. Uh, you're a tech service officer. I'm not going to have you. I'll get a combat officer." So I went back to uh, Texas and called the Pentagon, and they said, "Well, he didn't have anything to say about it. You're going to be the commander, whether he likes it or not." Yes, sir. <laughs> so um, a couple months later. I walk in and I say, uh, Colonel, here are my orders from uh, Department of Army. I'm going to uh, command this unit whether you or I like it or not. I said, you stay off my back for 60 days, and if you don't like the way we're done, I'll call the Pentagon and ask to be relieved. And we made a pact right there. And uh, that's a hell of a position to get into when you're going to take a unit into combat. Yeah, then they sent me almost uh, all of the, uh, the pilots were right out of flight school. Had never had one minute of, of flying time from the time they graduated to the time they started flying with us, which was a great liability, but it was also a great asset because they hadn't picked up any bad habits. And I had a number of officers who were uh, just had just come back from Vietnam. They weren't very happy about it. So you know, you, you got a bunch of lemons there. You got to do something with them. So we turned out making lemonade of them, and, and we had a tremendous uh, uh, training tour up in, in Colorado. We got to Vietnam, and the second night after we got there, uh, they had a, a huge mission. I don't know how many hundred helicopters were out there. There must have been a bunch, but we were 34 of them. And uh, we picked up our people and took them out there, and I had no idea how my young people were going to do uh, first time in combat. A lot of the young men were, had been drafted in. They didn't particularly want to be there. But uh, we built a fair amount of esprit de corps. And we approached this area, and the rockets and machine guns were going off, and the flares were all over, and it was one hell of a battlefield out there. And uh, here we've got all these uh, people we don't know we had picked up along the way, and we're dropping them in there. Uh, and I've looked back a number of times at the, uh, the, uh, the way in which those men conducted themselves, my pilots and the crew chiefs and uh, no one got out of line, no one got scared, no one missed, uh, screwed up, and, and I, for hours we were shuttling those people in and out of there with great discipline, and I was, I was so proud of those guys. And uh, I, I just had to take a few minutes to, uh, uh, to tell you how great they were. Well, I, I can tell uh, you that the tradition that, that you started when you first got to Vietnam continued on the whole time I was there. I've never met a finer group of men in my whole life. Because well, I was a hard every nose single one because of them were willing to lay their lives on the line for, for anybody else. I was a hard nose because I was over there once before. This is my second tour, and uh, we I made them run every morning. I made the officers run with the enlisted men and, and all of us, and uh, I remember falling down myself and they all laughing at me. <laughs> but I wanted them to have self-confidence and, and to feel that they could get back to our home unit if they got shot down, those kind of things. Well, there was, but, you had uh, to have a certain arrogance. To be a pilot anyway, you know, you had to be confident. You were flying around in a box that was a pretty good, good-sized good target, so you had to have a, a lot of courage, I think, that, that most people didn't think about. And we didn't think about it while we were doing it. had a nice overhead fan there to keep us cool, you know. That's yeah. right. <laughs> Kick it out of trim and everybody was cold off. <laughs> yeah, uh, Dale. Yes, sir. Uh, I was to, uh, actually... Uh, in the hospital when the, uh, the next day when the Tet hit, and I think it was, uh, they overran the Benoit Air Base at one time, and 
or no, the, there was an air base there at the hospital, if I remember correctly, at that the 93rd. And they, they overran that, and, and they came and got all of the patients, and they just put us in a bunker. No weapons, nobody was with us, and I, I, I thought, man, you know, if they get in here, <laughs> it's going to be a mass slaughter. Oh, yeah. And, well, but anyway, a... it, it, they finally got everything straightened out, and... Uh, but you know that's that's just stuff that comes to your mind, and all this stuff you talk about, all this stuff. Well, we had some pictures that that were on our website, but I decided that we probably wouldn't didn't want to show them here on on uh, on our program because they they were pretty graphic. Although probably people should see them of of the result of the of the VC and NBA probably in the wire at Longbin, which was you know with at Plantation where we yep. lived at the time. They were everywhere, it seemed. I never was a plantation that much. Uh, I was always out. We were at Bammy to it with the Special Forces, and we flew into Cambodia every day for like uh, three weeks. And then we came back to Company Area for like a week, and then we went over to the uh, LERP outfit. I think the Major thought I was out of Song Bay, possibly. I don't know. Was that one of the things that you was thinking about? Well, no, not really, because I had been told that you were uh, attached for that mission you were on uh, to another unit, the battalion unit, and that you were just a tag along with them. And uh, so uh, I didn't really clear my mind. I had a lot of things on my mind right then. I, I can't understand. Oh, I can't imagine. <laughs> <laughs> we've got a we've got a picture of, of Major Carlson up on uh, up on our webcast right now, as he looks probably today. And uh, so if you get the opportunity to go there, you can go back and check our webcast after the program's over, and you can see some of the pictures that we've been showing there. And I did see a, a rather embarrassing one of a pilot. I, th I think his name was Woody, you, you had mentioned before, the one that, where, he, where he was sleeping. He was probably exhausted after flying yeah. know, 20 hours of a day. And I saw it come up there, and I went, uh-oh, he's not going to be happy to see that one. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll say something about Woody here. He He really... And he he talks about this every time we talk. I mean, he he's got a lot of guilt about the, the way things went, and you know he lost sight of the ground, and he's really uh, I'm sure he's got a lot of problems thinking that it's his fault that everybody got screwed up. But you know, I never once never once had any problem with. What went on, or what he did? I mean, you know, like the major said, when you're in combat, there's a there's a certain amount of chaos. And <laughs> Woody did what he thought he had to do. He thought he was doing the right thing, and you know, it, it, he just it was just a decision that he had to make. And well, we, we all made out. those mistakes. We're coming up on another break, so I'm going to have to cut you guys off here for just a second. I want you to make sure that you stick around, you two, and also to our audience. You're listening to Veterans Radio. We'll be right back after these messages. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. He blesses the boy as they stand in line. The smell of gun grease. And their bayonets they shine. He's there to help them all that he can. To make them feel wanted, he's a good holy man.
There's another familiar song for the, some of you from the 195th out there. Probably other units listen to that song as well on your nice TIAC reel-to-reel recorder with your headphones on all, all along the way. We're talking with Wendell Skinner and, and Major Earl Carlson of the 195th Assault Helicopter Company, later changed to the Aviation Company, a helicopter company, whatever they wanted to call us. I think they were trying to clean up our image a little bit. But uh, Wendell had been uh, shot down, and the aircraft had rolled over on him, and uh, Major Carlson had gone out in the middle of the night and gotten him out of there. And they just met up with each other again about uh, last year after 42 years, one year, something along those lines. I those numbers are getting so high now, I can't even count them anymore. I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dale, yes, I'd, like to, uh, I'd like to do two quick things, if I could, please, with... Uh, with uh, uh, excuse me, Wendell. Wendell, uh, first of all, uh, was the swimming pool still there at, uh, at uh, uh, what was the place you were so that bent me to it? No, I, I, I was never around a swimming pool. Uh, oh, there's we a great the story middle, there. They uh, stole that swimming pool from the Air Force, sent a couple of trucks over there over the mountains and, and offloaded onto their own trucks instead of the Air Force getting them. Therefore, never figured out what had in that, that great big swimming pool. That sounds a lot like in 1969 when we swiped a pallet of plywood from the Koreans and built an officers' club. But you know. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yes, well, I, I, I uh, went into Bambi tour twice. One time uh, going from uh, uh, Pleiku, my first tour up to uh, Saigon. Uh, all aircraft were forced to have a force or a quick landing as soon as possible because uh, uh, the prime minister had been uh, assassinated. And a few months later, going from Saigon back up to Pleiku, uh, because President Kennedy had been uh, assassinated. So that was two little trips to Bambi to it, and they had a beautiful club and, and pool and everything. But that was the first time, and things tightened up a hell of a lot after that, so I wasn't sure. Uh, the other thing is, uh, would you please ask uh, Woody if he would call me or email me, if you would give him my uh, telephone number and email address? I think you have both of those, right? I can do that. We will, we will, do. We will do that. Not, not a problem. So, uh, Major Carlson, I wanted to ask you about the Tet when uh, when when they uh, attempted to, or did overrun uh, Benoit and, and Longbin. How, how long did that did, were they able to hold the land, or, or were we able to fight them off at that time? Well, uh, Longbin was uh, uh, oriented north and south basically, and we were on the west side uh, of uh, that airfield uh, <clears throat> with adjacent to them, and then they had a a uh, evacuation hospital uh, across about uh, a half to three quarters of a mile. It was nothing but uh, brush and, and underbrush and, and little rolly hills there. Mm -hmm. And at three o'clock in the morning, all hell broke loose, and uh, the rockets and mortars started going off, and, the, and machine guns then started. We were getting 50 calibers through the uh, water tank, and uh, uh, it was just uh, one heck of a mess. Uh, and I was afraid we were going to run out of ammunition because we'd lost our, our contact. The wires had been cut. And uh, so I went out to the, to the uh, front to tell the guys to, uh, you know, they were shooting like mad. I said, don't shoot until you see something out there. Don't just shoot, shoot ammunition. Well, they said, yeah, we saw these uh, couple of guys jump up there, and, and uh, we opened fire. And then we got a lot of fire back. Well, what I finally surmised was that a couple of VC had snuck in there, and one of them had a pink shirt on, and I think the other one had a blue one on, if I'm not mistaken. And they were jumping up to draw fire, and then the fire was going to the hospital, and the hospital was firing back. Well, that was a 50 calibers in big one. I thought, well, now, a couple of snipers like that wouldn't have had 50 calibers. 
So I called the hospital on the radio and, and said, uh, talk, got a hold of the CO and said, uh, would you please stop firing for, for 15 minutes and I'll do the same as of right now and we'll see what's causing this. And nothing but silence. So I realized then that I, I'm not sure that was the same hospital I took Wendell to or not, but for whomever, you were <laughs> we were cross firing back and forth across there and, uh, finally got that stopped and, uh, but, uh, uh, the thing that, that really upset me was the worst day of my life was all this firing going on and rockets and machine guns and I'd call the uh, NCOs and, and officers in the mess hall to, to make sure our strategy was and who was going to be responsible for what and so forth. And all of a sudden, this tremendous explosion and rattled the buildings and everything. Everybody hit the floor and, and I jumped up and ran across the bodies and got outside just in time to see a nuclear weapon. Uh, the cloud go up, and I, I had uh, gone through tests out in Nevada of the nuclear weapons. And I thought, oh my God, rushes into this, and uh, mm-hmm. been reading about the, uh, the uh, spy ship had been captured by North Vietnamese, uh, North uh, Koreans, and we had done nothing, America had done nothing about it. Reading in Newsweek about the college campuses and the riots and so forth, and I thought, man, here we are surrounded. We have no chance of getting out of here. We're going to be outnumbered, and uh, they're giving up on us. And then I found out after about two hours that a million gallon of a tank of the JP4 had been set off by sappers, and that's what I saw. And it sure created a nice mushroom cloud. Uh, well, there was a wasn't there, there was an ammo dump out. I forget what direction it was off to the east. I think of of the plantation runway somewhere out there. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I can remember it accidentally, uh, I think it was one of the gunship's uh, crewmen that set off a rocket, went off between his legs through the revetment and out into the ammo dump and set off a nice Fourth of July fireworks. But unfortunately, I think it was April. But it, uh-huh. yeah, <laughs> that, was, that was 1969. That was a yeah. year later. Because our, our, our Tet offensive was not uh, nearly as obviously as, as uh, intense as the 1968 one, they just lobbed rockets into the revetments and so forth, and we were told to evacuate, but we couldn't evacuate because there were too many rockets coming in. You know, our sister unit there at, uh, in Long Bend uh, hadn't been as well trained, apparently, as our guys had, and they were a little clumsy, and they set off one of those rockets and went right through the compound and out the other end. Boy, I'll tell you I think what, that was the 117th, on wasn't it? Was that no, the no, 117th? That was, that was, oh, you mean the unit that uh, fired the rocket? Yeah, that was a, the guy were across the street from uh, where we were located. Well, I, I, we're coming up against the top of the hour. Uh, both of you gentlemen, I want to thank you so very much for being on Veterans Radio. Are there any last things that we want that either one of you want to say? I'm going to go to Wendell first. I, you know, I'm just thrilled that I, I got this story out there, and and uh, I'm definitely some soon. I'm going to try to get go see Major Carlson and. Uh, uh, give him a big hug, because uh, you know, without without his efforts, I would not be here today. Well, thanks, Wen. We got a, a, a guest wing of our house. When you and your family are welcome to come and stay with us, you get you get down this way. Well, uh, hopefully, I can take care of that. I'm I, I'm working toward that goal. <laughs> I would like to say this too: that uh, for all the guys, and particularly young men who were drafted in in our unit, uh, on that first mission, we had that scary night. Uh, uh, a lot of young men became, uh, of young boys became men that night, and uh, it was one heck of a sight. And from there on out, uh, we were we were solid. Well, I, I appreciate we all appreciate those comments because it's so important 
to for people to realize that you know we were we fought as one unit. There wasn't a lot, any dissension when we were out on a mission, and there was no dissension anywhere. Bob wanted to ask a quick comment, I believe. Hold on, both of you. Yes, I do, and I want to thank our guests very much for being on the program today. I've been sitting on the edge of my seat. I really don't know how, how I'm going to come down from that. What an incredible story. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. God bless. I'm just I'm to thank you guys. Well, this is what we're trying to do, and this is a great example of getting the stories out about two ordinary men who did extraordinary things in an unusual situation, and we are grateful to have both of you on the program, and we want to make sure that now that you are here, it is archived and it's for posterity. 200 years from now, some distant relative can pull this up out of the Library of Congress and go, hey, that was my great-great-great-great-grandfather. <laughs> That's cool stuff. That is, you know, I, I, I'm far from a hero. The major's the hero. I mean, I, I was just doing a job. Hey, that's what everybody uh, says. Uh, my other partner, Gary, says, you pilots, you never talk about what you really did. And we just said, we're just doing our job, just like everybody else. All the other military people we've talked to, they were they were just doing their job. When uh, were you drafted or did you volunteer? I volunteered. Uh, well, I have a special uh, feeling for all the men who are uh, drafted. Those of us who volunteered uh, should have known what we're getting into, you know. <laughs> but the draftees, I, I really feel for those guys, those both who living and, and those who, who didn't make it. I think that's, that's a, a great tribute, uh, Major Carlson. I want to thank you so very much. Wendell Skinner, thank you also. And we're going to get this book published for you and get that story out for you. Major Carlson, we're going to have you back on the program because you've got other stories. I want to thank you both for being on Veterans Radio. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's program. I, I, it was great just listening to those two men talk about their experiences together. Um, unfortunately, uh, Wendell passed away in 2018, and uh, Lieutenant Colonel Earl Carlson passed away just in uh, 2021. Uh, another interesting story that came out after we did the program initially back in 2010 is that uh, one of the special forces teams on the ground reported that, uh, remember, uh, Wendell was talking about the pilot, Woody, who had so much guilt and had you know, suffered severe post-traumatic stress. Anyway, one of the uh, team that was on the ground when, the, when they crashed said uh, – that they weren't, you know, they didn't crash because of pilot error. They crashed because an RPG went through their mast and blew uh, their blades off, blew the blades off of the helicopter, and that's why it crashed and turned over so violently. Now, I don't know if that's a very, you know, if that's a true story or if that's hearsay, but it, it certainly, from what I understand, when Woody heard that story, he, obviously he felt so much better uh, about what had occurred, that, you know, that he realized it was not his fault. And I, I think, you know, when you, you think about these men, you know, young men in their 20s, uh, you know, fighting these missions and going out in the dark and, and so on and so forth, I think it's a great uh, story about the determination and dedication of, of the pilots and crew chiefs and the team members, everybody working together as, you know, as a team. Again, if you have any story ideas that you would like us to cover, please just send me an email. That's dale at veteransradio.net, or you can go to our website, veteransradio.net slash sponsors. Oh, one last thing. You know, during the, the um, 
program, I mentioned that, you know, we were talking about slides and so forth, and of course we didn't have the capability of reproducing that, and unfortunately that file was lost. But if you do want to see some of the pictures that were mentioned in the uh, story, you can go to this website, it's a Shutterfly website, it's uh, the 195th Assault Helicopter Company, all spelled out, dot shutterfly.com slash pictures. 195th Assault Helicopter Company dot shutterfly dot com slash pictures. And there's thousands of pictures in there for you to, that you can look at, uh, to see what happened with the 195th Sky Chiefs. And, uh, they're very humorous in many cases. I was going through them earlier today. So anyway, I want to thank you all again for listening. Next week is our benefits program. Any questions, send me an email. Contact us on our website, Veterans Radio, uh, .net, and until then, you are dismissed. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.